Welcome to Simply Jesus. One key part of Simply Jesus is answering your questions. And last month, um, Matt Wilson looked at the, an encounter between Jesus and a man called Nicodemus. He was a religious leader called the Pharisee, but he was also a pretty important religious leader because he was a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he met Jesus late at night. And he set a bit of homework for us, which was to go away and find out what happened to Nicodemus after that encounter. Well, John, who is the author of the book that we're going to have a look at a bit later, records two more instances of Nicodemus. The first is a conversation at that ruling council. They're out to get Jesus. They're looking to kill him. But somehow, despite the fact that he's preaching in very, very open places, no one seems to be able to get hold of him and arrest him. And the council are having a conversation about this. And Nicodemus says, keep an open mind. Don't contemn him until you've heard what he said. The council weren't impressed with this, and they gave him pretty short shrift. Later on, at the end of John's Gospel, we find that um, Nicodemus was around at Jesus' burial. And interestingly enough, he was involved in preparing the body. There are a couple of facts. Firstly, they used 75 pounds worth of spices, which is unbelievably extravagant. You'd never normally use that volume. The second thing, it's something the women did, not the men. So there's two things I draw from this. The first thing is, how did John know about the conversation at the ruling council? There's only two, you know, Nicodemus must have told him, mustn't he? How did John find out the about the original conversation with Jesus? It was either Jesus or Nicodemus. So I suspect it was Nicodemus. So I think one of John's sources for the information was Nicodemus himself, which said he had a relationship with John sometime later. The second thing we find is that he was there at this burial. Now, if you're a member of the Jewish ruling council that are out to have Jesus executed and you've just succeeded because of the information he was passing on, the last thing you'd have done is to be there at the burial, all right? You'd have kept plenty of distance from you. And anyway, you don't need to do it because traditionally that's what the women did. So I think Nicodemus moved from being a skeptic to a believer. I believe that Nicodemus's life was changed by Jesus and turned around, which meant he took that amazing risk um, in helping to bury Jesus. That was why he started to defend him in the ruling council and why he was one of the sources of John's gospel. So that's the answer. I hope you think that's reasonable. If you've got any more questions, then grab me afterwards. I'm more than happy to have a further conversation if you think I've got it wrong, or you think there's more that you'd like to know. At the bottom of lots of the slides, there should be my text, uh, my telephone number, so do text us a question if you want me to answer, or someone else to answer, next month. Uh, a question perhaps coming out of this week's message or possibly something that's completely unrelated to the message. 
you know, we're happy to take any question that you want to raise. You'll also know that we've got a lot more young people here, which is absolutely fantastic. Feel free at any point to go and grab a drink, whether you're older or younger. Go and grab some sustenance. I use the word deliberately for the very small ones. Feel free to go and grab uh, whatever you want out the back. That's absolutely fine. There's some craft over here on the right-hand side. If um, children are getting restless, they're more than welcome to take part in that at any point during the service. So feel free to move around. Um, I, I will do my best not to be too distracted unless you all decide to go and do the craft. Then I'll be a little bit uh, shocked. Right, we're going to have a video now. Now, this video goes back to 1991. And for those of you who are under the age of probably 40, you won't have heard of Wogan. Think the one show, but back in the 1990s. Now, Terry Wogan interviewed a guy called David Icke. Some of you may have seen this. I'm not going to tell you much. So just listen and see what you think. I have edited it because it goes on for 15 minutes, so you've got an edited version. If you want to see the whole 15-minute interview, just YouTube it. You'll find David Icke Wogan. You'll find it. ...more serious than mere ecological disaster. According to his book, The Truth Vibrations, the world as we know it is about to end. David Icke. in the turquoise, which of course is the, mm. is the collar. Mm. Yes. But now, let me get the story right. The press claim that you claim to be the son of God. Mm -hmm. Is that true? Yes, you see, the thing is that, uh, you see, it's, quite, it's quite funny really. You know, 2,000 years ago, had a guy called Jesus sat here and said these same things, you would still be laughing. It's really, really funny that we've not really moved on that much. So listen to what the traditional church is If you don't give them any kind of proof, if you don't give them any reason to believe in you, they will dismiss you as a crank, which is what they're doing. Well, that's their free will choice. But, Terry, uh, but that's if, just I am say, if I am saying that these things are going to happen this year, then we'll see, won't we? And what will happen if they don't happen? What will happen to you? They will happen because if they don't happen, there will be no earth. And it is, it's as simple as that. And I frankly don't care what anyone thinks. They have free will to make their own choices on what is said. I say wait and see. Ladies and gentlemen, David Icke. Thank you. Believe it or not, David Icke is still talking. He's still passing on his message and hundreds and hundreds of people come and see him and pay to see him where he presents all over the world. The evidence he gave was um, natural disasters. There are going to be natural disasters. All right? And that is evidence of what he was saying. Uh, I couldn't get that in. We'd have been three or four minute video. Um, but that was his, his piece. There were going to be floods and earthquakes and things like that. And that proved what he was saying. And if those things didn't happen, then the world was going to end. So that's his, what he was saying in a nutshell. Right, Rosie's now going to read us a short passage from John. It's not super short, actually. <laughs> it's John chapter 5. 
and the heading at the top is the healing at the pool. Some time later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him. Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill Jesus. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he'll show him even greater things than these. For just as the father raised the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he's pleased to give it. Moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son just as they honour the Father. He who does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And he's given him authority to judge because he's the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this. For a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who've done good will rise to live, and those who've done evil will rise to be condemned. 
By myself, I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just, for I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Thank you, Rosie. We live in a world where you have instant access to whatever information you want. So you think it's easy to answer the question, Jesus, so who was he? I can find out almost anything at a click of a button. I can tell you that Jennifer Aniston's dog's names are Dolly, Clyde, and Sophie. That took me a fraction of a second. I can also tell you that the number of disposable coffee cups used in the UK is 7 million. That's quick, nice and easy. I have absolutely no idea whether that information is true. But you stick it in Google and the answer pops out. The Conservative Party recently tweeted that there was a 14 billion pound cash boost they were gonna make into schools based on an article on the BBC website. Unfortunately, it was a seven billion pound cash boost and what they've done is added up three or four years worth of money and then put 14 in. Boris Johnson then went on to quote it himself the Conservative Party clearly made some mistakes, but this stuff's still on the internet if you want to go and find it. And interestingly enough, the Conservative Party now use it as a part of their training for media relations about how easy it is to get these things wrong. The problem for us is when you just click on the internet and find stuff, don't you? You can find anything. And you don't know whether it's actually true. When you look at your social media feed, one of the things that I'm learning is that it's curated. You don't see everything from every person that you know. You see stuff from people you tend to click on or like. It also looks at the sorts of things that you look at and then provides you information that it thinks you'll like. Which is why, if you are a Remainer, you tend to see posts about Remain, and if you're a Brexiter, you'll likely to see posts about Brexit, reinforcing the views that you have. But it's not just the internet where we can get caught out. Back in 2003, for Christmas, I received a book called The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. It's quite a good read if you like those sorts of thriller, conspiracy things. And it was talking about the fact that the church had misled people about the true... Um, bloodline of Jesus and who he was. And this was curated, this was being managed, this information was being held by a secret society called the Priory of Zion. And if you looked through art and ancient documents and architecture, you could see this message and how it had been maintained over the years. And I know people at work who I had arguments with because they were convinced this book was right. The trouble is, the Priory of Zion, who are the curators of this information about Jesus, were invented by Pierre Plantard, who's the guy on the right, in 1956. And he was a well-known hoaxer in France. 
and much of the um, art and messages that have been outlined in Dan Brown's book have been thoroughly discredited in academic circles. You know, we can read stuff, but how do we know it's true? How do we know it's worth believing? And then when we get to Jesus, we have the added problem that he was born 2,000 years ago. So the only way that we can really know is to go back to the original source documents. If we investigate for ourselves who this Jesus was. Now, the passage that was read by Rosie is from a book written by a man called John, who was one of Jesus' followers. <clears throat> we know this book was uh, uh, written between 20 and 50 years after Jesus died. And we actually have fragments of this document that date to within 70 years of it being written. Now, that may seem a long time to you, but that is unheard of for ancient documents. That suggests that this, this document, because this is the, the um, wording on here from John 18 on these fragments, that, that this document, because it was found in Egypt, the original document probably dates back about 50 or 60 years before that. So we can have good confidence that actually the document that we've got today, this John's Gospel, is pretty accurate to what was written by John many years ago. The final interesting fact about um, this story we've just heard is up until about the 1950s, it was believed that John's Gospel was written a lot later, and one of the key bits of evidence was this pool at Bethesda never existed. No one had found it. So what they said was it was written by people a lot later and they'd made this up. Until in 1964, during excavations, they found the pool at Bethesda. They found the colonnades. And they discovered that what John wrote was actually accurate. It's just they'd not found the evidence. Now, because we're going to have a look at John's account, I think it's important that we understand that John comes at this not as a completely impartial writer. John comes at this with an agenda. He tells us towards the end that he wants to convince us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and to convince us that we might have eternal life, have life in his name. So this man has become convinced of who Jesus is and why he came. And that's why he wrote it. The other thing he tells us in here, or implies in this piece here, is that one of the things that's convinced him is a number of signs that he's seen. And the story we've just read is one of those signs. One of those things that convinced John, a follower of Jesus, that Jesus was the real deal. So let's just walk through the story. Jesus had arrived in Jerusalem for a feast, and he'd come across a pool where lots of disabled people 
sat during the day and begged in the hope that when the waters stirred, they would be able to get into the waters and be healed. Jesus approaches one individual around the pool. This man had been uh, an invalid for 38 years. And on encountering Jesus, something amazing happened. He was healed and he could walk again. Jesus transformed this man's life from a life of begging and abject poverty and boredom to a point where he had a hope and a future. Jesus transformed his life. I think it's really interesting. This man had been there 38 years. This wasn't some clever imposter Jesus had imported with some clever trick that the guy was okay and then it looked like he was disabled and then not. Everybody knew this man. They'd seen him there for years and years and years. And when Jesus encounters him, the miraculous happens. It was things like this that convinced John. But Jesus said something really, really controversial. I don't know if you spotted it, but it caused a lot of upset. He told the man to get up and carry, walk and carry his mat. Now, for most of us, we sort of go, well, what? Why is that controversial? Well, the Jewish nation had ten commandments. You'll have probably heard of these. And one of them was about not working on the Sabbath, which was the Saturday. And clearly, this healing took place on, one of, on a Saturday. But the religious leaders had taken it a step further. They didn't just say, don't do your normal day's work on a Saturday. What they forbade was any form of manual labor, which would include things like carrying your mat. So this guy gets into lots of trouble. The religious leaders spot him carrying his mat and ask him why he's done it. And he said, well, the guy that healed me, he was the one that told me to do it, therefore I carried my mat. He wasn't sure who it was until he found out later, and then he went to the religious leaders and told them it was Jesus. When they discovered Jesus was the ringleader, the one that was causing people to flout the rules, they started to plot against him. They decided that Jesus was not the sort of person they wanted to have around. So how did Jesus then respond to the religious leaders? You know, he was in trouble, he'd uh, disobeyed the rules, he then goes on to say, my father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. Now the reference to his father is to God. So what Jesus is saying is, God is always... God is my father, right? and I'm doing his work. He's saying, I'm God's son. He then goes on to say a bit later on that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever doesn't honor the son doesn't honor the father who sent him. He's saying, you should honor me like you honor God. And if you don't honor me, you're not honoring God. He's saying, 
that he's God's son and in some way that he is equal with God. This was deeply, deeply offensive to the Jews. These were people who wouldn't even say God's name because it was so holy. And yet for a man to say he was equal with God was unbelievably shocking. It was such an evil thing to do. To say things like that and draw other people into that blasphemy. It's not surprising that um, they tried all the more to kill him. This was one of the key turning points where Jesus went from being a nuisance and a problem to someone they had to eliminate. And they did it because he was calling God his father and making himself equal with God. But that's not all. It's interesting, um, the different reactions. When David Icke said he was the son of God, everybody laughed, didn't they? Because they thought he was a bit mad. When Jesus said he was the son of God, he was definitely evil and you have to get rid of him. Interesting cultural differences in different places. But that wasn't all Jesus said. He said something equally shocking or amazing, depending on your perspective as well. He goes on to tell you that whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. He's saying, I am the source of eternal life. If you come to me, you can have that life. God won't judge you anymore. Whether you're a religious leader, Nicodemus, we talked about earlier, whether you're blind or paralyzed for 38 years, whether you're a prostitute, or whether you've been married multiple times, it's irrelevant. This offer of life is available to you and is available to every individual person here if they ask. That's Jesus' claim. If you come to me, you can have that eternal life. These are fantastic claims, aren't they? How would Jesus have got on on Wogan making these claims? How does Jesus get on making these claims in your mind? Is Jesus any different to David Icke? I think the key thing is that with Jesus we have credible evidence that what he says is true. Unlike the evidence that David Icke gave on his Wogan program. And in finishing what I'd like to do is just to walk through some of that evidence with you.
The first thing that will have had a massive impact on um, John will have been ancient documents. He'd grown up as a Jew and will have been taught about their ancient scriptures and will have been promised some Messiah that was going to come from God. He will have seen those things come true in Jesus. We've got a quote from Jesus here uh, quite early on in his ministry, uh, recorded by a number one, another one of the people that wrote an account of his life, uh, quote, where Jesus quotes a prophet called Isaiah. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is a prediction of that Messiah who was going to come. And he's saying, that's me. And if you look at Jesus' ministry and what he said, those are the things that fit very closely to what he did and said. Interestingly enough, he didn't get a very good reaction when he said that in his hometown as well. But there are lots and lots of prophecies, lots and lots of predictions in the Old Testament that point very clearly to who Jesus is, where he was born, what his ministry was, how he was likely to die. And despite what I said earlier, if you're really interested in seeing these, there are hundreds and hundreds of them, and I'm not planning to go through them all today, um, just go online and stick predictions about Jesus in the Old Testament or something like that, and there's lots and lots of websites that will put the Old Testament prediction, what we learn in one of the Gospel accounts, and you'll be able to see how one matches up with the other. But although that will have been quite convincing, I would suggest to John at the time and to the listeners of Jesus, I suspect for those of us here who haven't been brought up in those scriptures, that will be less helpful. But certainly that was an important piece with John. The second piece of evidence, which for me is more likely to resonate with us, is what I'm calling credible witnesses. These are people who spent their life with Jesus and became convinced about who he was. One of the things about the Bible that um, we often forget is this book is actually 66 separate documents written over thousands of years. Each, many of the documents, different authors at different times and different styles. So when I stand here and say, and it, sorry, it wasn't, these weren't collected into one book until about the fourth century. So when I say there are four separate accounts of Jesus' life, that's because there are four ancient documents outlining his life and who he was by different authors with different perspectives, seeing Jesus' life through different ways. These individuals spent their time and their life with him and they were convinced in who he was. Of those close followers of Jesus, only one of them was not martyred for following him. Even Jesus' brothers and family were convinced of who he was. There was something about this Jesus 
that was different. That convinced those closest to him that he really was who he said he was. The next piece of evidence I suggest is the supernatural signs. Now, this is the thing that John says to us will convince us. And John records seven in um, his account. There are many other um, examples in the other accounts by the other authors talking about his life. John talks about when Jesus went to a wedding and turned water into wine. Not just okay wine, really good wine. And vast quantities of wine. Jesus healed a dying official's son remotely. Jesus wasn't present. But when Jesus said, at the same time, that son lived We've just talked about the, the healing by the pool. Jesus fed 5,000 men. We don't know how many women and children were there as well. But he fed them with five loaves and two fish. Little more than a meal deal at pret manger Jesus walked on water. He healed a man who'd been born blind. A man called Lazarus had been dead in a tomb four days in the heat of the Middle East. The smell would have been appalling. You wouldn't have been walking around the tomb. But somehow this dead man came to life when Jesus called out to him. A miracle of resurrection. And the final one is a miraculous catch of fish. Fishermen out all night can't catch a thing. And then they encounter Jesus and he says, flip the nets over the other side of the boat and suddenly there's more fish than they can possibly, possibly deal with. But that's what you'd expect, isn't it? If God genuinely came down to earth in the form of a man, if Jesus was the Son of God, you would expect him to do amazing things. Wouldn't you? And for me, the final and most compelling factor is Jesus' resurrection. This is something, interestingly, that Jesus predicted. Matthew records it several times in his account of Jesus' life. And here he tells us from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, and be killed and raised again on the third day. Jesus predicted this, and it happened. This was seen not just by the four disciples that record it. It was seen by hundreds and hundreds of people who touched him, who ate with him, who talked with him. 
In fact, one of the uh, writers to the early church tells us of an occasion where 500 people saw Jesus alive at the same time after he'd been crucified. But I think the thing for me that really seals it is something happened to the followers of Jesus. The night he was crucified, they were in hiding. They were terrified. They didn't know what the end would be. And if you look at accounts of other religious leaders in and around that time, when they were killed, their followers disappeared. They were not heard of again. But something happened to these followers of Jesus that turned them from timid people into people who would be willing to risk their lives to tell everybody about this man, Jesus. Despite the fact that the Romans and the religious leaders of the time were out to persecute them. They were stoned, they were killed, but yet they still persisted because they had seen something and they had met a man who really was the Son of God. So where does this leave us? Jesus made some absolutely incredible claims about who he was. He claimed to be the Son of God. He had an expectation that you would honor him in the same way that you honored God. And he claimed to be the giver of eternal life. Those are fantastic claims. Those are amazing claims. Those are claims that Lauren Daigle, who sang the song right at the start, believe. She talks of still rolling stones. That's a reference to the stone that rolled away when Jesus rose from the dead. And those rolling stones can be the same for us as we find new life in Jesus. I want to leave you with a quote from C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and the rest of the Narnia series of books. He also wrote a number of uh, books uh, explaining the Christian faith. I'm going to read a quote from him where he talks about how you should view Jesus. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, as in Jesus. People say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil from hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, 
or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, and you can, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come to any patronizing nonsense about this being a great human teacher. He, as in Jesus, has not left that open to us. In fact, he never intended to. So I want to leave you with this question. Jesus. So who was he then? 